Welcome once again to Evidence-Based Radio on location. (laughs) I'm going to start calling it on location. That seems more fun than uh, quarantined. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So I want to apologize for having missed um, being on last week. I actually wrote this script last week and was all ready to go and then work blew up on Friday and I just didn't have time to get it in before the wire. So I hope that you don't mind that these stories are a little stale, but I think that most of them are uh, pretty fantastic nonetheless, even if they're a week late. Um, And I do want to start with this really cool news from last week. Um, I mean, it's silly, but it's also really fun. And so uh, if you haven't heard, because it didn't get a ton of fanfare, let's be honest, Podocensaurus holiocensis, or swift-footed lizard of Holyoke, won a social media campaign last year to become the state's official dinosaur. And now it's truly official. Governor Baker signed into law the designation of this little dino from right here in western Massachusetts. The dino dinosaur would have been three to six feet long and would have weighed around, would have been able to run around nine to 12 miles an hour. The dinosaur was found in Hadley in 1910 by Mount Holyoke professor Mignon Talbot, the first woman to find, discover, name, and describe a dinosaur, Representative Jack Lewis, the Framingham Democrat who came up with the idea, noted. Hopefully, if this project inspires just a couple young girls to grow up and explore paleontology, it would have all been worth it, he said. Now, I'll remind people that you can go and see dinosaur footprints, for instance, in several places in western Massachusetts, including a spot in Holyoke maintained by the Trustees of Reservations, which is really fun to go to. I've been there a couple of times and you can walk around on the slabs and actually see the dinosaur footprints there. It's really cool. And of course, there is the extensive collection at Amherst College in the Beneski Natural History Museum. This museum also houses a cast of the original specimen of P. holiocensis, the original having been lost in a fire in 1917. So uh, definitely consider uh, doing a little bit of dino-related fun this weekend if you can. Um, It's a great time to go to Holyoke to the Dinosaur Footprint uh, Park. It's really a little bit hard to get to Oh, sorry, it's not hard to get to. It's a little bit hard to find sometimes because it's just a sign on the side of uh, the road. But uh, if you use your GPS, you should be able to get there pretty easily and it's totally worth it. Um, so yeah. Okay, so we're going to turn now from paleontology to archaeology. 
Recent genetic analysis of bones found in Greenland have widened our understanding of how ancient people managed to survive for long periods in this rather inhospitable island. Now, of course, you all probably remember that Iceland is the one that's actually fairly habitable and Greenland is the one that's almost completely covered in ice and completely inhospitable for most of the island. Um, And so some pretty interesting uh, juxtaposition there. A team of scientists from various institutions in Denmark and Greenland, along with an Australian colleague, studied remains from ancient middens or trash heaps to discover that ancient people ate a much wider variety of foodstuffs than previously suspected. And so, again, as you probably know, Greenland, or I'm going to try my best to pronounce this, Kalalalit Nunat, uh, which is the Inuit name, is, again, pretty inhospitable. So the researchers wondered how ancient people could thrive there for any length of time. Basically, you can't grow much of anything there. It's mostly you have to rely on or did at the time. You know, they didn't have modern farming techniques the way that we do now. I should have looked up whether or not there are actually any uh, farming done on Greenland at this point. I don't actually know. I apologize. Um, But I think that... It's probably unlikely given the sort of soil quality and the inhospitable uh, climate. Sorry, I've used inhospitable a lot. (laughs) I apologize. Anyways, it turns out that four distinct peoples have tried and succeeded to varying degrees to thrive in this cold wasteland. The earliest were the Saka, who began to inhabit southern Greenland around 2500 BC and remained there until around 800 BC. Genetic research on the remains of the Saka, that's S A Q Q A Q, individuals have shown that they share a large amount of similarity with Siberian Yupik and Aleut, which suggests they entered North America from Siberia and spread across Canada in order to reach Greenland. So, of course, we know that most of the people who are uh, native to the uh, Americas came through the land bridge in Siberia and spread out into both Canada and the U.S., and eventually down into Central and Southern America. I say most because there are definitely some um, ideas at this point that some people did arrive in the Americas via boat. Um, And so that is not uh, out of the question at all. And obviously there's still a lot of unknowns about when people first got to America how they got to America. There's 
active research happening right now. And there have been controversial research uh, findings that people have been uh, very dubious of. So there was, I think, a cave in California where someone basically tried to suggest that humans had been there uh, butchering mammoths long before anyone else thinks that people were in the Americas. And so part of that problem is when you're dealing with that kind of really ancient evidence, you're having to make judgment calls on whether the uh, lithics that you're finding, the pieces of stone, are actually worked by humans or if they just look like they were worked by humans. And so it's very important to try and be a bit uh, skeptical of anything that is really outside of what else we know. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It could completely and utterly be true. Um, I was actually listening to a video earlier today where there was a bunch of circumstantial evidence about a particular um, ritual that uh, many uh, Indo-European uh, peoples engaged in. And I might talk about it more later, so I don't want to talk about it too much. But one of the things that they said was that, you know, there was all of this linguistic evidence and there was folklore and there was, uh, you know, historical ideas and there hadn't really been any physical evidence until they found one site. And so, um, you know, sometimes there is only one site that gives you the kind of evidence you need. And, um, yeah, I might talk about that other, um, the, the mammoth study, just to give you a better backgrounder, um, at another point, I feel like right now it's a little dubious, but again, that doesn't mean it's always going to be dubious. It might end up becoming settled science someday. All right, but let's get back to Greenland. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so these people, uh, the Sakak, left behind substantial remains of dwellings, but they don't seem to have engaged in ritual burials, which is unfortunate for archaeologists because those tend to be accompanied by grave goods. And grave goods are a lot of how we know things about uh, especially really ancient cultures because they buried those things in a way that often helped preserve them better than if they were, um, you know, eventually discarded in a midden or things like that. Those usually end up being broken pottery shards, whereas you can find intact pottery in a lot of um, ancient burials. However, we do know that they were excellent woodworkers, able to make extensive use of driftwood that had already accumulated on the island before their arrival. So, you know, the island had been there for a long time, uninhabited by any humans. And so they were able to use what had already accumulated. They also had access to bone, antler, ivory, and skins. Previous explorations of middens from this culture have found the remains 
of 45 vertebrate species, along with mollusks and vegetation, including berries. So there is vegetation, obviously, on the island. Some areas were all season and very and varied areas of gathering, while some areas shown signs of being specialized for the catching of specific fish, like Arctic char, or for the specific hunting of caribou. There is also evidence of a widespread trade exchange with the distribution of raw materials such as kiliak, a gray metamorphosed slate, soapstone, agate, and the uh, before-mentioned driftwood. Now, the next culture to dominate on the island were the Dorset people. This culture most likely arose out of one of several groups that preceded them, including the Saka, the pre-Dorset, or Independence One people. Unlike those cultures, however, there was no evidence that the Dorset hunted with bows and arrows, nor did they have drills, which these other cultures had developed. Instead, they used a distinct parallel harpoon head, which they used to hunt various sea animals. They also made soapstone lamps called kilik and were master carvers, creating miniature carvings of animals and masks. So this suggests a shamanistic tradition. Um, and of course, this is based on the fact that many other peoples who um, we have better historical knowledge of also had these kinds of shamanistic traditions around animals and using masks and things like that. Um, so it's a little better than just, it doesn't have a specific use, therefore it's ritual, um, which is often unfortunately the case in archaeology, is that if you don't know what it was used for, then chances are it was... Uh, it goes into the bin of ritual or just decorative. Genetic studies suggest that these people were closely related to the Saka and did not intermix with either the Norse or the succeeding Thule, who replaced them and are the ancestors of the current inhabitants of the island, now known as the Inuit. Um, because, of course, as we know, the Inuit have been called things like the Eskimo, which is not a word that they have ever used to uh, refer to themselves as and uh, do not find to be a uh, nice descriptor. I'm pretty sure it's one of those uh, descriptors that is like from another uh, group of people and it in, and it describes them as like, oh, yeah those jerks or something like that, um, something very derogatory. And so uh, they refer to themselves as the Inuit. Now, the Norse reached the island in the 10th century, led there by Eric the Red uh, after he was supposedly exiled from Iceland. So Eric was first on Iceland and then uh, he... I can't remember exactly what the legend says he did. He, I think, picked a fight with the wrong person and ended up being kicked off of Iceland. Now, some of these settlers would later sail with Leif Erikson and eventually reached the coast of Canada, making them the first Europeans to reach the main landmass of the Americas. 
Because of course, one of the other things we always have to remember is that Columbus literally never stepped foot on the American continent. Not Central, not Southern, not Northern America. He only made it to the Caribbean. And also, people had been there for thousands of years by the time even the Norse got there. And so it is very silly to suggest that any uh, Europeans found uh, the Americas or discovered them because they were already there doing just fine and in fact would have been much better off had the Europeans never made it there. Um, that is definitely one of those things where like if you had a time machine what would you do? And I would be like, I would find some way in which to prevent Europeans from reaching the Americas. Um, I don't know how I would do that. I would obviously need some sort of like space age technology to put like a force field down the middle of the Atlantic or something. <laughs> um, uh, and probably along the Pacific as well. But uh, I just think it's such a terrible tragedy that the people of the Americas did not get to uh, continue to develop in the ways that they were prior to European contact. But I also always want to remember the fact that, you know, we talk about these great tragedies, but there's still plenty of living, breathing Native Americans, Native Inuit Native Central and Southern Americans, the Maya are still very much a people. Um, and, uh, you know, there's still people who can draw their ancestries back to the Inca and the Aztec and, um, you know, the Puebloans and all sorts of other people. Um, it's a shame that the civilizations that they had developed were cut short, but it's very important not to talk about Native American people as if they are fully in the past because there are amazing Native American people who are doing amazing things uh, to preserve their cultures, to, um, you know, live in our society and be helpful and good people. And, you know, there's also Native Americans who are just, you know, regular people and they're not some sort of um, lost uh, group of people. They're still here. They're still very much here. It's just that their ability to um, survive and thrive was uh, severely disrupted by European contact. Um, contact. And so, yeah, I, I just want to be sure that I remember to say that, um, because it's really important to remember that there are still plenty of people who can trace their ancestry back to, um, you know, Native American people who survived, um, you know, the reason that they're here is because their ancestors survived and have continued to thrive as best they can. Um, and in some places thrive amazingly. Uh, there's plenty of that. Okay. I'm going to stop rambling about that and get back to the story again. I'm sorry. I keep getting 
on tangents. So uh, the Norse retreated from the island in the 15th century. Uh, basically, this is the time where Norway was dealing with the Black Death. And so everybody was dying in the mainland. And so a lot of people uh, ended up going back because obviously supply chains couldn't be sustained. And um, if you had loved ones in Norway who needed to be supported, you needed to go back. And so um, Greenland was definitely not a place to try and stay and uh, tough it out. Now, interestingly, the Portuguese flirted with claiming the island. They called it Terra de Lavrador, which is how the province of Labrador actually got its name. Now, finally, the Thule developed their culture first in Alaska around 1000 and reached Greenland by the 13th century, replacing the Dorset culture fully by the 15th century. Genetic evidence suggests that they were related to the Bernerk culture of Siberia and were not genetically similar to the Dorset people, nor did they intermix with the Norse. The Thule did interact with the Norse, however, and the Norse sagas refer to the Thule as Skrælingar. They expanded their range along much of the east and west coasts of the island. Like many cultures in the Americas, they declined, unfortunately, after more intense contact with Europeans in the 18th century, as they were still struggling with surviving the Little Ice Age. Their culture broke apart and eventually uh, did lead to present-day Inuit um, cultures in the area, both on this island and in other parts of uh, Upper Canada. The Thule adopted more advanced technologies, such as dog sleds and large boats, that previous proto-Inuit cultures had not acquired. The Thule relied heavily on the bowhead whale. Now, obviously, I've given you a lot of information about this, but I'm pretty sure uh, <laughs> that if you're listening to this, you're probably like me and you didn't have a lot of knowledge of the history of Greenland. Um, I certainly didn't before I started writing this. And so I hope that that was uh, a useful backgrounder for you. And so this new study used bone fragments from 12 sites across Greenland. Instead of the traditional examination of the bones to identify them individually, they used metabarcoding and shotgun metagenomics to find genetic signatures of 43 species of birds, fish, and marine and terrestrial mammals. So basically what you do there is you take a bunch of uh, tiny bones and you um, extract DNA from all of them as kind of a set. And then you are able to uh, run them through algorithms to find the um, find different correlations to different species. And so it's not, you know, taking one sample from one bone and putting it through the sequencer and it's putting a bunch of different kinds of, of genetic material 
all in the same place and then using algorithms to then match it to uh, barcodes that already exist. So a lot of species have had their genomes sequenced. And so those are kept in databases and they're called, you know, um, genetic barcodes. And so then you can uh, be able to match against that. They found evidence of the presence of five whale species, with the bowhead, unsurprisingly, making up the majority. They detected nine fish species, of which four had previously not been identified as being a part of the culture's diets. And last, but certainly not least, they discovered evidence of a new dwarf caribou, unfortunately now extinct, that would have migrated to Greenland after the last ice age some 9,000 years ago and was found in a midden dating back to 3,000 years ago. Now, the study suggests that whaling was indeed a larger part of ancient people's survival than could previously be confirmed, and it also confirms that these people had sophisticated technical know-how for hunting on both land and sea. And so, yeah, very interesting. I have never... uh, done very much extensive uh, listening or talking about or reading about Greenland. So uh, that was really cool. All right. So we've talked about animal remains, and now we're going to talk about plant remains. Plunging back in time, an international team of researchers affiliated with the University of Oslo have extracted and analyzed plant DNA from sediments at an ancient Armenian cave site called Aguitu 3. The cave was used as a shelter by humans in the Upper Paleolithic between around 40,000 and 25,000 years ago. The excavations were led by the National Academy of Sciences in Armenia and representatives from the research project The Role of Culture in Early Expansions of Humans, or R-O-C-E-E-H which is based at the University of Tübingen and the Senckenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt. Their report is published in the Journal of Human Evolution. Aguitu III is one of many basalt caves in the highlands of southern Armenia. The 36-foot-deep, 59-foot-wide, and 20-foot-high cave is one of just a few sites with remains of habitation from the Upper Paleolithic in the country. The cave was occupied between 39,000 and 24,000 years ago. It's a long time ago. Stone artifacts, animal remains, bones, tools, shell beads, and charcoal from campfires have already been found in the cave, explains Dr. Andrew Kendell, the excavation's scientific director from the R-O-C-E-E-H project at the University of Tübingen in Germany. Although we know that plants played a fundamental role in the lives of prehistoric people beyond serving as food, plant parts such as seeds, leaves, fruits, and roots are rarely preserved since they are organic and usually decay quickly, which makes them difficult for us to study. So in order to better try and get a chance to study what plants were being used in the cave, the researchers extracted DNA from soil sediments and found that the amount of plant DNA in the soil greatly increased 
during the time period when it was most occupied by humans. We therefore attribute most of the plants found to human involvement. People collected the plants during their daily activities. Once used, the remains of the plants were left in the cave where, to our delight, the DNA was preserved in the sediments. By analyzing the DNA and comparing it with previously identified pollen types, we gain a more complete picture of the plants that were available to people and how people might have used them, explains co-author Dr. Angela Bruch from the Roche uh, Project at the Senenkenberg Research Institute and Natural History Museum in Frankfurt. Fascinatingly, they were also able to identify a total of 43 plant orders. All but five of these are known to be used by humans for various things. They found plants that can be used as food, as flavoring, medicine, and even as mosquito repellent. They also found evidence of plants that can be used to create dyes and or fiber, which suggests that they may have made thread or twine and may have used it to make strings of shell beads. This find fits into the overall picture of Agatu 3 like a missing puzzle piece. Needles made from animal bones were also found in the cave during our excavations. We now know with a high degree of probability that our ancestors sewed in the cave and how they did it, Kandel said. And as with the previous study, this is also a proof of concept for using these kinds of techniques to learn more about other sites. In the future, we will use this method at other sites to learn even more about our ancestors, concluded Bruch. Um, and one of the things that I always like to point out when I'm talking about uh, our far ancestors who were fully modern humans, uh, it's a reminder to people that the paleo diet uh, is a big lie. Um, human diet at that point was not mostly meat-based. It included a variety of plants and starches and other items that would have made it much closer to a modern balanced diet. Uh, so the next time someone tries to tell you that they eat paleo, ask them, um, how many veggies and starches they've had that day, <laughs> like our ancestors would have actually eaten. Okay. Uh, let's take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we return, we are going to uh, move up slightly in time to the Mesolithic. So uh, stay tuned for that. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. 
Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Midterm Election Day is November 8th, and Civil Politics is once again doing a live election night special. Join us as we talk about the results as they come in, our predictions, and the topics most important to you. We'll be on the air from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, 103.3 FM, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. That's 9 to 11 p.m. on Tuesday, November 8th, and remember to vote. And we are back as... Uh, I hope you already know you are listening to evidence-based radio. And so we are going to be moving off the continent to Britain and, as said, moving forward in time into the Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age period. And so during this period, people and animals walked along a muddy pathway on the British coast. Erosion has now revealed this almost two-mile-long swath of human and animal trackways along a stretch of coastline near Formby in England. Originally noted in the 1970s, it was thought that they were just quote-unquote cattle footprints and largely ignored. In the 1990s, a retired teacher began dating them. Realizing that they were of some antiquity, Byrne said, before then, people didn't think the prints were particularly interesting or old. Sorry, that's Alison Burns, the study's lead author and an archaeologist at the University of Manchester in England. Since this time, they've continued to be revealed Due to erosion of the coastline as the sea eats away at the covering sand dunes that helped to preserve the footprints, Burns said. The trackways give researchers insight into how, at the end of the last ice age some 11,700 years ago, sea level rise forced both humans and animals inland. Now, if you don't know, during the last ice age, there was actually a landmass that connected Britain and the European continent, uh, now referred to as Doggerland. And so the new study, published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, reports on the trackways, which range in age from the Mesolithic, which lasted between 15,000 BC to 50 BC, all the way up to medieval times, 
476 to 1450 AD. The trackways were able to be dated by the collection of seeds from alder, birch, and spruce trees found within the various layers, which allowed for carbon dating of those layers. There are around 36 exposed layers or outcrops that are well-preserved with some stacked upon each other. They represent not only humans, but also a rooks, red deer, wild boar, wolves, lynx, and even cranes. Only some of the outcrops are visible at any one time, Burns told Live Science. The farther down you dig, the older the outcroppings are. The footprints are preserved under the sand, and as the coastline is being eroded, the water is eating away at the cover that helped preserve them. When the tracks were made, they were filled with sand and then a layer of mud. That's how you get these stacks. Once you have four or five beds on top of each other, the top layer is vulnerable to erosion, but the ones beneath it are quite well preserved. There are dozens of prints at the site, but one in particular caught the attention of Burns and her team. Not only is it the oldest at 8,500 years, but it's also remarkably well-preserved. It was a human track that proceeded forward four or five paces, and then the person stopped, Burns said. They were barefoot, and the footprints were fantastic. The mud had oozed up between each toe, so you got so you get all the features of the footprint. Immediately adjacent to them were prints from a crane. The person could very well have been looking for birds to hunt during a scouting expedition. And beside the crane, there is a clear set of adult red deer tracks nearby. Within two square meters, or 22 square feet, we get this amazing snapshot of the past. Now, this isn't unique to this coastline. 250 miles to the southeast, there is an area with 900,000-year-old human prints. However, the site at Formby reveals how humans and animals lived together. Many footprint studies typically focus on the human prints and not the animal prints, Byrne said. I was really interested in seeing how the animals and humans shared this very populated environment. So that is super cool. Again, any way in which we can learn more about how ancient humans uh, interacted with nature, how they interacted with each other is so important. And you would think that, you know, some footprints can't tell you all that much, but I know I've talked about other places where um, amazing trackways have been found and it's just such a cool thing. Um, so yeah. And again, obviously you can visit our local trackway of dinosaur footprints uh, down in Holyoke. Moving just a bit forward in time to the Neolithic, but sticking with Britain, researchers have uncovered evidence of cereals being cooked in pots. A team of scientists led by the University of Bristol excavated Neolithic sites surrounding artificial islands called Cranach in Scotland. Um, it's either Cranach or Cranogs. Uh, it's spelled C-R-A-N-N-O-G-S, but I feel like it's pronounced with more of a C. 
They found evidence that cereals were cooked in pots and either mixed with dairy products or sometimes meat. They further found that the inhabitants used smaller pots when presumably making a kind of gruel using milk and larger pots for meat-based dishes and possibly stews. The research was led by doctors Simone Hammon, Hammon and Lucy Cramp at the University of Bristol's Department of Ar Anthropology and Archaeology. Their findings are published in the journal Nature Communications. Cereal cultivation in Britain began around 4000 BC and was probably introduced by farmers migrating west from the Europe European continent. Some preserved cereal grains and debris have been found previously at Neolithic sites, but this evidence is rare. This time period also saw the introduction of pottery. Many studies have been able to detect products such as milk in molecular lipid fingerprints from samples of this pottery. However, only the signature of millet had previously been detected in these lipid signatures. However, we know that cereals like wheat went on to dominate global food supplies, and still do to some uh, large extent, though uh, rice, which is not technically a cereal, so it doesn't technically count, is obviously another huge one. And in fact, we know that pottery can hold the signature of grains. Roman pottery from Vindolanda, or uh, the area around what's now called Hadrian's Wall, was found to have specific lipid markers for cereals that survived because the pottery was waterlogged and highly sensitive techniques had been developed in order to detect such signatures. But that pottery was a mere 2,000 years old, and researchers already knew that Romans were eating cereals at this time. This new research shows that you can find those same biomarkers in pottery several thousand years older, given the ideal preservation conditions. It's very exciting to see that cereal biomarkers in pots can actually survive under favorable conditions in samples from the time when cereals and pottery were introduced in Britain. Our lipid-based molecular method can complement archaeobotanical methods to investigate the, or the introduction and spread of cereal agriculture, noted Dr. Hamann. Not only does this research expand our knowledge of the diet of these people, it also may help us learn more about the Cranachs themselves. As I mentioned, they are man-made islands, and researchers aren't quite sure exactly what they were used for. They found that many of the pots analyzed were both intact and decorated, which suggests... Say it with me now, we've already talked about it in this episode. A ceremonial purpose. <laughs> and as some of the Cranachs are far too small for habitation, these might have been uh, centers of ritual. The analysis showed that a third of the pots had grain biomarkers, thus making this the earliest biomolecular evidence for grains in absorbed pottery residue 
in this area. The results show a strong indication that wheat was being cooked in these pots, despite the fact that barley is the plant most likely to be found at settlements. It may be because wheat was being cooked in pots rather than charred over the fire, which leads to the barley surviving to be excavated. And most of the pots that showed signs of cooking cereal also showed signs of milk products, suggesting that a kind of gruel was widespread. This research gives us a window into the culinary traditions of early farmers living at the northwestern edge of Europe, whose lifeways are little understood. It gives us the first glimpse of the sorts of practices that were associated with these enigmatic islet locations, added Dr. Cramp. And so, uh, Cranachs in the Outer Hebrides are the focus of the four-year Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded Islands of Stone project. Duncan Garrow from the University of Reading and one of the leads for this project says that this research undertaken by our colleagues at the University of Bristol has hugely improved our knowledge of these sites in many exciting ways. We very much look forward to developing this collaborate this collaborative research going forward. And so the next steps for the project are to examine the relationship between the Cranach and other Neolithic sites in the Hebridean region and beyond. They also plan to continue to do a more extensive comparative study of the use of different forms of pottery using the lipid residue analysis method. So again, uh, one of the great things about all of these stories is that they're all about things that are really cool and important for that site, but almost all of them are also testing out new methods that can then be used in other um, areas moving forward. And so not only are they developing new kinds of knowledge about the areas in which they're working, but they're also developing new techniques. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, because there's still so much we don't know about, uh, ancient people and, um, you know, it's only going to get worse as we lose a lot of archaeological sites, uh, in the future. I mean, we've already lost so many. Um, I still am slightly heartbroken after all these years about, uh, the Three River Gorges Dam that basically flooded, a ton of really important cultural sites uh, in China. Um, and yeah, um, a lot of these places are on coastal lands because, you know, fishing and uh, sustaining yourself from the sea is something that a lot of uh, ancient people did. And as uh, climate change continues to uh, lead to uh, sea level rise, we are going to be losing some of these sites. And so I think it's really important for us to develop the best techniques we can uh, right now in order to really be able to examine them as quickly and as efficiently as we can. Okay, 
So let us move on now and we are going to switch back to the uh, area of the Americas and we are also going to shift substantially forward in time and we are going to talk about a site from the ancient Maya. Excavators discovered submerged Maya salt kitchens off the coast of Belize, which have signs of worker habitation and potential kin-based work teams. The site is called Ta'ab Nukna and operated between 600 and 800 CE. It's the most extensive of 110 sites submerged in the area below the Paynes Creek Nature Reserve on Belize's southern coast. The paper is published in the journal Antiquity. The discovery of a residence at the site indicates that salt workers were living there instead of commuting daily from somewhere else on the coast or moving to the coast seasonally from inland areas, said Heather McKillop, an archaeologist at Louisiana State University and the study's lead author, in an email to Gizmodo. The Maya produced salt in two ways, solar evaporation or boiling brine in bricotage, or coarse ceramic vessels over fire. This was the preferred method at this particular set of sites. Salt may have been used as a form of currency. Uh, see, for instance, ancient Rome and the uh, word salary, which actually comes from salt. But this was certainly, but it was certainly used for preserving fish and c meat for cooking. The researchers found the remains of a residential building and three salt kitchens near the structure in the shallow waters off the coast. The area is surrounded by a forest of red mangroves, salt-tolerant trees that are very common on the coastal shores of Central America. Because mangrove peat is anaerobic, it allows for greater preservation than you'd get elsewhere. Basically, the equivalent of a bog, um, if you think of bog bodies and their uh, really, really good preservation. Because of this, wooden posts and other crafts made by the inhabitants of Ta'ab Naknu have survived, which is really cool. Among the findings were building posts, ceramic remains, notched wood, a ceramic spinning whirl, a possible fishing weight, a model boat, and a portion of an ocarina in the shape of a human. So ocarinas are those little... Uh, um, handheld kind of flute uh, items that you often get as a souvenir in a lot of uh, Central American uh, countries. And uh, of course, if you're a nerd like me, you know ocarinas from, of course, uh, The Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. <laughs> but anyways... <laughs> Artifacts brought up to the surface have been placed in bags of water to keep them from drying out and potentially decaying. Excavators have used flotation devices to avoid disturbing the seafloor and potentially hurting further evidence. 
The late classic Maya incorporated salt production as the focus of their economy and relied on trading with others to obtain many other daily goods, McKillop said. The Ta'ab Nuk, the Ta'ab Nukna, salt makers returned with corn and other food, as well as the minority of pottery we find that is not local. More salt would have been produced than was needed for the local population, and therefore it's suggested that it would have been regionally traded. Measuring from modern salt works, the researchers calculated that 10 salt kitchens in the Paynes Creek area could have produced 60 tons of salt during the four-month dry season. They write, Production was based on household surplus, independent of oversight by royal courts, practiced full-time during the dry season and possibly year-round, as at the modern salt works at Sacapulis, Guatemala. It's not clear, however, how many of the 110 sites in the area were operated at once during the late Classic period. The team plans to start excavating smaller sites near Ta'ab Nukna in order to better understand the workings of the salt kitchens. A pottery paddle at one site suggests it might be a place where the brick where the bricotage was made. Once again, we can see that the Maya were a complex and advanced civilization, and that apparently Belize was a center for salt production, and that this salt may have been traded throughout the Maya kingdom, because of course they had huge and amazing trade routes, and were a very uh, advanced civilization. All right, I'm not going to harp on that too much tonight. <laughs> I think I have gotten my point across. Okay, that is all we have for tonight. Um, it is the uh, Halloween season. Uh, and so if you are going to be celebrating Halloween this weekend, I hope you have a lot of fun and remain safe. Uh do remember that the idea of uh, poisoned candy has been debunked hundreds and hundreds of times. The only time it ever happened was somebody who knew the actual children, and it was not at all tied to trick-or-treating. It was a completely different kind of incident. And so, yeah. Um, I like Halloween. Halloween is fun. I don't think it's anything uh, to be worried about. I was watching, obviously, there's a bunch of people who are pulling out the whole Halloween is evil and bad thing. Just let people live and let live. Um, you know, obviously, I don't believe in, in the supernatural, but Halloween is a fun time. Um, you know, read about some haunted houses or some uh, cryptids or monsters, watch a scary movie, just have fun. Um, I mean, you could watch uh, 
a ghost hunting show even. Normally, I don't recommend those because they just will, I mean, at least to me, they just make my uh, blood pressure go up. But there are a couple of fun ones on YouTube, for instance, not ones that are on major television because, of course, they have to try and produce ridiculous results and do a lot of uh, things that I find to be clearly uh, put on. But um, there's at least one I watch on YouTube that I do enjoy. And um, yeah, anyways, I just wanted to uh, say have a happy and safe Halloween. And um, I will be back next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.